This morning we're going to continue, as we have every few months or so, a series of theological topics that Pastor Tom has assigned to some of us men, and uh, we're the fill-in preachers when he's not here. I know Mark Foreman, uh, Kim Elmore, myself, and we last heard from Mark in October on the authority of the scriptures, and our topic for today is the doctrine of the inerrancy of scriptures. So we're going to be looking at that. And that was one of the purposes in having the, the two readings today. One is from the Psalms, which talks about the, the, the truth, but the goodness of God's word. And then also our, our reading from Matthew, where you know, Jesus you know, said to Satan, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So that's one of the things we're going to be considering today as we go forward. So our time this morning is not going to be a, you know, a session of expository teaching on like a very particular passage that you know, tells us everything we need to know about the inerrancy of the scriptures, but we're going to look at a few verses that will kind of cover things. And if I asked today, if I asked everyone here just as a group, you know, what is the meaning of the inerrancy of scriptures to you, we'd probably get a lot of you know, similar responses, just judging from the question and the topic itself. And, you know, all with the idea in mind, well, the the scriptures are without error, right? Inerrancy of scriptures, scriptures are without error. It's kind of a, I guess, a maybe a circular kind of argument there. And that is true. It is true, didn't saying that. But there's probably a lot about more that can be explained more fully. And if so, how? And that's kind of what we're going to take a look at today. So again, we're going to look at a few key verses, and hopefully after today we'll have a little better understanding of, of this topic. So I'm going to ask, actually ask the screen uh, to go up on the screen with a few things here. Um, in October 18, or 1978, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy met in Chicago, and I think it had something to do with the Moody Bible Institute there, and they arrived at this, what a short statement is what they called it, on the inerrancy of the scriptures. And I'm using this illustration to kind of give you an example of all the things that involve just looking at the doctrine of the inerrancy of scripture. So I'm going to read them. The short statement, number one is, God, who is himself truth and speaks truth only, has inspired holy scripture in order thereby to reveal himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as creator and Lord, redeemer and judge. Holy Scripture is God's witness to himself. So that's one. You know, God himself is truth. That's an important thing to consider. Secondly, the Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, Embraced as God pledges in all that it promises. So again, it's the, the authority of God's word and the infallible nature of it. It is divine. The third thing, the third point. So you have to check and make sure that I'm following along correctly. The third point is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Scripture's divine author, both authenticates it to us by his inward witness and opens our minds to understanding its meaning. Fourthly, being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teachings, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, 
than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. Fifthly, the authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own. And such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. So you can see this is, this is no light matter, is it? It's in great depth and detail that this Bible conference described in its short statement. So at this widely accepted Bible conference on biblical inerrancy, they came up with this Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy. It went on to conclude, get this, in no less than 19 additional articles addressing the inerrancy of scriptures and no less than 25 articles on the biblical hermeneutics of it. So that is a lot of material. So I'm saying that to say that it would be a great undertaking to drill down into every article and every component on biblical inerrancy that the, the group in Chicago discovered. So we can't possibly do that today. But what we'll try to do is to address inerrancy the best we can in the time that we have. So it just goes to show you how, what depth there is to this. So, and frankly, you know, it's, it's not, not a surprise that I, I can't profess to be a scholar like those men, of course. Highly educated, seminary trained theologians, linguists who all went to the work in the effort to prepare that kind of thing. And probably like most of you, I'm not skilled in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and you know, I don't have any written other uh, languages that I process, and I haven't written any you know, scholarly papers, those kinds of things, but I speak, read, and write only one ang- language, and that's English, and sometimes I have difficulty doing that. <laughs> but like most of you here today, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I've trusted him as my Savior. I've received him into my heart, and I believe in him, and I trust in him for my leading, I've given my life to him, and it's by faith that I have that. I depend on him, and the thing is that he is faithful even when I am not. So when it comes right down to it for me, and probably for you too, accepting the inerrancy of the scriptures as a biblical doctrine, it's just one of those things that as believers we, we accept by faith. We trust in it. But does this mean that we, we take it blindly or we just you know don't investigate at all we don't have any thought into it whatsoever of course not and that's one of the reasons why our pastor has asked that we consider it as a a critical topic to address and I, i for one am thankful that you know many of these men like the chicago conference have gone before us dedicating themselves to serving the lord by doing that kind of work and really they are serving others by examining those kinds of things and we are grateful so the other thing I want to bring up is that before we really kind of get down into what I have to say about it, I guess, is that it's important to consider what you hear in relation to the scriptures, isn't it? We want to be Bereans about this. And, you know, they searched the scriptures to find out whether the teaching they were receiving was true. So that's a challenge for all of us, even in the preparation of my study today. But it's a challenge that you will all have today as well. So in taking a look a little more closely at inerrancy, I think we could begin with the, just a definition using you know, common language dictionaries. And the Oxford English Dictionary, for instance, defines inerrant as that does not err, free from error, 
unerring. You see the theme here, right? Unerring. And we might even say incapable of being wrong. Inerrancy is the noun form of that adjective, inerrant, and it means freedom from error, fault, or untruths. Freedom from error, fault, or untruths. So if we were to apply the common vocabulary terms to the idea of inerrancy of the scriptures, we would arrive at, in short, scriptures without error, fault, or untruths. So I think it would be wonderful if we could just go to the scriptures and find the, all the verses in the Bible that refer to the word inerrancy, you know, get out our Strong's Concordance or our Vines Dictionary and, you know, sort through the Greek terminology, find the cross-references, look at the other verses that, that mention inerrancy in hopes of, you know, satisfying our desire to learn more about that. But we'd be disappointed because we'd realize that the word inerrancy isn't in the scriptures. It's not there. It doesn't appear at all. But fortunately, you know, having said that, there, there are a couple verses that most scholars point to in particular, which seem to resolve the issue of inerrancy of the scriptures. We're going to look at those. They are 2 Timothy 3.16, which we've already read today, and 2 Peter 1.21, which is the memory verse in the, the bulletin this week. So 2 Timothy 3.16 is probably most often referred to in this vein. And if you'd like to turn there, I'm going to begin in verse 14 for a bit of context. And here... Uh, Paul is speaking to Timothy. I'm I'm going to be reading the New King James Version. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So again, this is a, a passage that, that many are familiar with. They probably have memorized it. And it clearly speaks about the inspiration of Scripture. It's from God. God has inspired the Scriptures. So in one sense, we consider this passage, what it tells us that Scripture speaks of itself as Scripture. In other words, Scripture validates itself as truth. Now, you can think about that because in most instances, validation of this type where, you know, an absolute claim of superiority or authority or something like that is made, you know, most of the time it's really not a good reason by itself to accept that as, as true, right? I mean, I could say, I'm the greatest at this or so-and-so is the best at that or I can do this. Well, where is the evidence or proof of that? It's kind of like, you know, going uh, maybe out on a limb in a sense, but about the Bible, it's really to the contrary, because if you think about that, based on the claims that are made in the scriptures, we would actually be surprised if the Bible did not recommend itself as true, wouldn't we? We would be surprised because of all the things that are in it, the truth that it claims, and the value that it claims that it offers to the world. We think about that in a sense that, could man on his own ever have conceived of such a book as the Bible? Could he have done that? When you consider the consistency of its message, its chronological history, over time and over ages, the regions, the locations visited, all the individuals involved, generations after generations, the story of creation, all these things, not to mention all the prophecies 
fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. There's over 300. There's no way possible that man could have written a book that has made such uniformity within, to have lasted as long as it has, and to have impacted as many people as the Bible has. Jesus quoted scriptures, didn't he? It is written. So in context, what we also see in this passage is that the very word of God is that which furnishes the enlightenment for salvation. Kind of going back to the psalm that we read, it is what enlightens the soul. In our verse here, it says, it is the scriptures that make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Faith comes by hearing, and what? Hearing by the word of God. Now, as it pertains to inerrancy of the scriptures, the phrase, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, is what resonates strongest of all, doesn't it? All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And in this sense, there are a couple of things to consider. First of all, while it's very likely that Paul is referring to the Old Testament scriptures that he's familiar with, the New Testament writings are under this umbrella as well. So we have to include those because they are the portion of the Bible that's provided through the apostles. Who, as we know, Jesus said to them, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, is the Greek word for inspiration, which is theanoustos, literally means God breathed, suggesting an active expiration, a blowing upon. So all scripture is theanoustos, it is God breathed. Now, this word is a combination of two Greek words, theos, which means God, and neo, which means to breathe, as in to blow an expiration, and it represents really an, an obvious influence over the writing of the scriptures. Judging from really the very deliberate use of that Greek word for inspiration, God's influence on the scriptures was not light, nor was it passive. In fact, it was a forceful exertion. In fact, the, the word for breathing Neo, that we've referred to here, is used elsewhere in the scriptures to describe the wind. For example, as in the parable of the houses on the rock and the sand. Matthew chapter 7. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Very strong wind, very strong storm. And his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus used the same word, when he said, for the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. If you've been outside and you hear the wind blow, that means it's a pretty strong wind, right? You can, you see the, maybe the wind blowing the the trees, but you don't necessarily hear it. But if you can hear the wind, that is a powerful blowing of the wind. So um, about this passage in his Doctrines of God book, Evans writes that inspiration then is defined by Paul in this passage as the strong, conscious inbreathing of God into men, qualifying them to give utterance to truth. It is God speaking through men. So similarly, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 is a primary text for the inspiration of scriptures, but then it helps us understand the inerrancy of scriptures a little more. So if you'd like to turn there, 
Second Peter chapter one, I'll begin in verse 16 for context. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So in this explanation of the prophetic word of the Old Testament, scriptures are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, Peter who was a witness to Christ, as we know, makes plain the fact that the scriptures did not originate with mere mortals, but rather holy men of God, that is to say, men especially chosen by God, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moved God's holy men to write the scriptures. And Vine's Dictionary has this to say about that word, move, because that is the key word here. As they were moved by the Holy Spirit, it means to bear, to carry. And in this sense, being moved. These men are being moved, signifying that they were, they were born along, we've heard that expression, or impelled by the Holy Spirit's power. Not acting according to their own wills or simply expressing their own thoughts, but expressing the mind of God in words provided and ministered by Him. About this in his commentary, MacDonald says, this is one of the key verses in the Bible, on divine inspiration. In some ways, which we cannot fully understand, God directed these men as to the very words to write, and he did not destroy the individuality or style. So they weren't, you know, copyists or transcribers, but the Holy Spirit guided and controlled these writers of the scriptures. They used their own vocabularies and styles, but wrote only what he superintended. And what's interesting, and if you remember back in one of my messages on John chapter 17, we discovered the very same thing about God and his relationship with Jesus. The scriptures say that God the Father directed even the words that Jesus spoke, putting the words literally in Jesus' mouth, just as Moses foretold. If we look back to John chapter 17, as he prayed for the apostles, he said, Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. So Jesus is fulfilling the the mission and the job, the task that he has been given from God the Father, and even to the very utterance of the same words. So we should not be surprised, you know, that, that God would give these holy men the words they were to write and record. So both Evans and McDonald's thought on God's influence in the writing of the scriptures are helpful in clarifying really what is a, a very critical point and another layer in the, the doctrine of inerrancy, and it is this. Inerrancy of the scriptures applies only to the original autographs, the original writings of the authors of scripture. And it's a very important qualification. Um, when you think about it, the original manuscripts have been lost to us. We don't have original copies or the original uh, autographs. We do have copies 
In fact, you, we look at the scriptures, and as one writer points out, there is no biblical promise that copies of the original manuscripts would also be free from errors. And we do know that the Bible says that the word of God is settled forever, where? In heaven. But we have the word of God in copies. So we have to think about that in the sense that the Bible has been copied thousands of times over, over thousands of years. But because of human error, there have been mistakes. They've undoubtedly been mistakes made in copying. But here's the amazing thing. And, and in a sense, too, you could say that, well, people could make an argument. Well, how can we trust the Bible if it's been copied over and over? All these mistakes have been made. We can't simply trust that. But consider this. We have so many numerous copies of the Scripture in existence that have been faithfully preserved, translated, and passed down that are consistent and accurate. Researchers say that biblical manuscripts we have today are in 99% agreement with one another. And we also know that we have more copies of antiquity from, or of scripture from antiquity than any other writing of any other book in existence. So if we can, you know, trust what we read that, you know, what uh, Plato said and the copies we have of him, you know, it would seem all the more reason we could accept and believe the copies of the scriptures that we have. So 99% agree with one another. So there are minor differences, minor differences, in, but the vast majority of the biblical text is identical from one manuscript to another. And that, that is miraculous, isn't it? But it was God's intent that we would have this. So referring once again to the widely accepted 1978 uh, Council on Biblical Inerrancy, in terms of the original autographs, Article 10 says this, We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of scriptures, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from the available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and translations of Scripture are the word of God to the extent that they, are, that they faithfully represent the original. And there is that belief that, that it does. So. so at this point, we could say, well, if, if Scripture is inerrant, if it's been inspired, you know, why do we have to examine all this? If... If the God-breathed text exists in copies, we would say the copies are considered reliable, but not inerrant. And why is it important? Well, it should come as no surprise that it's, it's become important because clarifying the definition of inerrancy has become necessary because there are many who have, in very subtle ways, retained words like inspiration, infallible, and even inerrant when speaking about the Bible but still denying that it's, it's freedom from error. So it's sort of like they, they want it both ways. And about this, Charles Ryrie said, formerly, all that was necessary to affirm one's belief in full inspiration was the statement, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. You think that may have settled it, right? But when some did not extend inspiration to the words of the text, it became necessary to say, I believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible. Well, there's more. To counter the teaching that not all parts of the Bible were inspired, one had to say, I believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. And then, because some did not want to ascribe total accuracy to the Bible, it was necessary to say, I believe in the verbal, plenary, infallible, inerrant inspiration of the Bible. But then, infallible and inerrant began to be limited to matters of faith only. 
rather than also embracing all that the Bible records, such as historical facts, genealogies, accounts of creation. So it became necessary to add the concept of unlimited inerrancy. You see how this kind of grows, but it's all response to what? To erroneous teaching about the truth of the Bible. So if we look at it this way, if when all the facts are known, when we cannot trust the Bible, when in its original autographs, when properly interpreted, proving itself to be without error in all matters that it covers, including any areas of theology, history, science, any other discipline of knowledge, and whether it has to do with doctrine or morality, and whether it's in perfect accord with the truth, if we cannot trust the Bible, then you know, we'd be just like Paul when he said, you know, if, the, if Christ be not raised, our faith is in vain. And what that would leave us, again, like Paul would have said, he would have been left of all men most miserable. That would be our state. But fortunately, we know that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and the Bible is true, and we can accept it. And along that line, we should think about it. You know, truth should be of the highest value to us, shouldn't it? You know, sadly, there, we might like to think there was a time when we could say, well, a man's word is good, but there never has been that, that time, has there? There never has been that day. You know, I mean, it's, it's worse now. It's just getting worse. I mean, you look at all the, the news and information about the concealing of information, the selective release of news here and there, you know, controlling the, the news outlets, all those kinds of things. But we shouldn't be surprised at that, should we? You know, it's, it's not about getting to the heart of the matter in these kinds of news stories or to any kind of truth. It's about who can control the narrative. Who can control the words that are being uh, listened to? And again, we could say there's, there's nothing new under the sun. <clears throat> Genesis, the serpent deceived Eve. Adam and Eve tried to deceive when they hid themselves from God. Abel committed murder, but he lied about that, didn't he? He tried to evade the, the truth. It's been that way you know, from man's beginning. Time and again in the Old Testament, we see story after story of unrighteousness, men, dishonesty, lying, deceitfulness. You know, even King David, right? Man after God's own heart. 2,000 years ago, in our reading today, Satan in his foolish pride believed that through deception that he could defeat God's plan. That's pretty prideful, isn't it? Knowing what he knew about God and having been, you know, what his most beautiful creature, it was said, the most beautiful of angels. But he tried to persuade Jesus by winning him, persuading him to worship him. He committed to him and offered him things which he could never deliver but he tempted Jesus with what? The distortion of the scriptures. A distortion of them, both in terms of their application and in his recitation of them to him, but he failed. You know, he had to have known that, that in trying to trick Jesus with scriptures and tempting and taunting him with scriptures that he was, he was talking to the word himself. What foolish pride. And not long after that, you know, Pontius Pilate, he was also faced with the truth dilemma, wasn't he? Having initially claimed charges against Jesus were baseless and he was not guilty, well, his conscience was already provoking him even before his wife messaged him to leave that innocent man alone. 
But in talking about, you know, obvious irony, he, in the cowardly acquiescence that he performed, and he pondered, what is truth, while at the same time washing his hands of he who he was, the condemnation of who he was sending to death, the one who was the way, the truth, and the life. What irony there. More recently, there's a group called the Jesus Seminars. Anybody heard of that? A group of New Testament scholars. They assembled to examine the biblical gospels to discover who Jesus truly was and what he truly said. Talk about irony. Here's the, the Jesus Seminars comprised mostly entirely of, I'm sorry, comprised almost entirely of individuals who deny the inspiration of scriptures, they deny the authority of the scriptures, and they deny the inerrancy of the Bible. So they gather and they vote on whether or not Jesus actually said the things that he was recorded as saying. So how does that register with you? So you have people who don't even believe in the Bible, but they're trying to tell you, you know, what Jesus may have said or not said. One observer said this about that. It's absolutely ridiculous, and it's even offensive to think that a group of scholars today can more accurately determine what Jesus did and did not say than the authors of the Gospels those holy men that were moved along, who wrote in the very same century in which Jesus lived, taught, died, and was resurrected. So it comes right down to it. You know, God's word must be defended as the truth. And the doctrine of the inerrancy of the scriptures is critical to that defense. So what's most important to us about this idea of inerrancy, that the Bible is absolutely true in all that it says, is that if this is true then God is true. And he is who the scriptures say he is. But conversely, if the Bible inerrancy is not true, then God is not God. And it is not, he is not who the Bible says he is. But we have come to trust the scriptures and we believe in them as authoritative in our lives. We read it personally and we hear it preached thankfully, faithfully from this pulpit week in and week out. You know, the scriptures are God's story, aren't they? They're his communications, his message to all mankind from creation to consummation. In hundreds of passages, the Bible declares explicitly or takes position implicitly that it is nothing less than the very word of God. And over 3,000 times it declares, God said, or thus says the Lord, or it is written. You're telling of God's infinite experience, his existence, his nature, his infinite love, and most of all, involving the relationship with the pinnacle of his creation, mankind. Made in his very own image, and the Bible answers all of life's most important questions in his record of history that he's given to us, dealing with mankind, and ultimately, it solves our greatest problem, doesn't it? Solving our greatest problem, sin. The scriptures are history, science, philosophy, and revelation. And they kept for our benefit just as God intended them to be. Nothing more and nothing less. In the last days, God spoke to the fathers and the prophets. But he has now spoken to us through his son. You know, we could say this loud and clear. There would be no reason for us to be here were it not for God's word. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you remember that, Josh, last week? We said, 
we're going to open God's word, and this is exactly what Pastor Tom said. There would be no reason for us to be here. Doesn't that resonate? There's no reason for us to be here unless it were for the word of God. You know, Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And truth is found in the word of God. And we should be in pursuit of the truth always, no matter what our circumstances. Even as you know, we live and dwell in the world, we are in the world, but not of it. We'll be confronted by the hard things we have to deal with, the, the untruth of living in the world. But we have the truth of God's word. You know, the world is not concerned with the truth, but we should always be no matter what. It should be the most important thing in our lives. And, you know, in, in 2 Peter 1.3, and I was reading in that passage there as we, we touched on the, the verse we looked at there today, but it says that he has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And we have his truth. You know, and there are more than 40 references to truth in the Psalms. 40 references to truth. There are more than 20 in the Gospel of John alone. So here are just a few. In Psalm 1911, Psalm 334, Psalm 119, 160, John 117, John 840, 146, 173, 1717, 1837. They say things like this. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I have told you the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. I came into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. So here we've come together to hear the truth, haven't we? We're joined together in a common faith that is centered on the truth and the life of Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate this season, don't we? In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, I'll begin there. It says, And she will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So here the scripture fulfilling a prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 7, hundreds of years before, one of the numerous prophecies from the Old Testament fulfilled at the birth of Jesus. So the amazing thing is that we as believers, without any kind of doubt, we can believe the validity of Isaiah's prophecy. For that matter, any prophecy we see in the Bible, we can believe. We can trust in the completion of them. We can, we can know they're going to be fulfilled just exactly as they were breathed by God. So we couldn't trust the scriptures as they've been preserved. Then we would have no cause for rejoicing at this time of year as we celebrate the Lord's birth. That's when the holy God of love, of mercy, of grace, and of judgment came down from heaven to redeem sinful man, and it began with his birth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is why he came. I'll close with this verse from 1 John 5.11. 
And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life and he who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the son of God. If you're here today and you don't know if you have the Son of God, if you don't know that you have life, then speak with one of us before you leave. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We are so grateful that you came to redeem mankind and we're grateful for the truth of your word, the inerrancy of the scriptures that you carried the holy men along to write that we have in our hands today and we are grateful for that for they bring life. In Jesus' name, amen.